The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. It's so good to be with you this morning. I had fun in class this morning. It was depressing for about 30 minutes, but we turned a corner, didn't we? We did turn a corner. Um, I was talking about hope in a world that's kind of increasingly hopeless. I also think I probably should say something about the book I'm going to be talking about this afternoon because I think in the advertisement they shared the title. The title's called Hunting Magic Eels, and I know that's very self-explanatory, but one or two of you might want to know what that's about. That's a weird thing to come back for in the afternoon, and I know I'm competing against the U.S. Open, so any dads, you're allowed to have your phones open and watch the leaderboard if you come back, okay, you're allowed to, you're allowed to give me, I teach statistics at eight o'clock to my students, so I'm used to nobody paying attention to me. So if you come back and you're not really listening to me, that's okay, because that part of me that cared died a long, long time ago. I just don't, it's just, this is dead, it's dead inside as I talk to my students about statistics at eight o'clock. But the title of the book, Hunting Magic Eels, comes from Here's a secret thing. You don't, as an author, get to pick the titles of your book. The, the publisher gets to do that. It's their job to sell it. So they, they pick your cover and you cross your fingers and they pick the title and they cross your fingers and they went with Hunting Magic Eels. That was not my working title. That, that's, that is the first line of the book though. It's, the first line of the book is we were hunting magic eels and that's why they, they went with it. And I was telling the story and my wife and I, we were in Wales, western, in the western UK in Wales um, on the island of St. Dwinwin. Um, where, no, we were on the island of Sandwin Island looking for the abbey of St. Dwinwin. And St. Dwinwin is the Welsh version of St. Valentine. So we celebrate St. Valentine's. They, they celebrate St. Dwinwin Day. For the, it's the patron saint of love in Wales. And the reason why St. Dwinwin became the patron saint of love in romance is because at, on her island... Uh, at her abbey was a well, a water well, and in the water well were eels. And the, the legend was that if you came and threw a token of your beloved into the water well, and the eels would come to the surface and disturb like the handkerchief you'd thrown into the well, that this was a sign that your, your lover would be faithful for life. And as you can imagine... Pilgrimages and tourism skyrocketed when that, that legend, people would come there and they would just throw tokens of their love in, hoping that the magical eels would disturb it. And that would be a sign that your love would be faithful for life. And Jana, my wife, was looking for this well with a particular intensity and focus that day, which I felt very judged by the entire time. Um, anyway, the well is no longer there. It dried up many centuries ago. This is a long time ago. Anyway, but I use the story at the start of that book to, to, to kind of frame that, yeah, that's a kind of a quaint, legendary story, like how, how interesting that people used to believe such fantastical tales, but we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a, an age of science and technology, and rates of atheism and agnosticism are on the rise. We live in a, a skeptical age. And so the book I'm talking about this afternoon is what does it mean to proclaim the gospel? What does it mean to point our hearts and minds to, to the action of God in our lives in a world where God is increasingly invisible or doubted? And what does it mean as my generation to pass on the faith to a younger generation? Because we know that the faith is, is it's not sticking as it once was. And so this afternoon, I'm talking about my best ideas, trying to um, talk about faith to a college 
age generation and also to an increasingly skeptical generation. So that's, it's, it has nothing to do about eels. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> it's just a story, but it's, a, it's an age about evangelism and a skeptical doubting age, which kind of brings me to the story I want to start with about love and hope in action. It's a conversation I had with a student that was going through a faith crisis. His name was Brad. This was back in the day when they were publishing um, those books from the New Atheist. Do y'all remember them? You might remember the New Atheist. Richard Dawkins published a book called The God Delusion. Sam Harris published a book called The End of Faith. Um, Christopher Hitchens published a book called God is Not Great. And these, these, these book titles were landing uh, on us like metaphysical bombs. And Brad had read some of these books. He was a really smart guy. And he found many of the arguments against faith very persuasive. And so he called me and said, Dr. Beck, can we have a conversation? I'm having some struggles and questions about my faith. And so I said, you bet. That's one of the things I love about being at ACU is being at the intersection of those conversations. So we met for coffee and we began having to talk about all the things. We're talking about evolution. We're talking about dinosaurs. We're talking about the violence in the Old Testament. We're talking about the atonement. We're talking about the problem of pain and evil and suffering. All the things that, that you maybe struggle with or that people struggle with about, you know, the existence or the goodness of God. And we're going through all the things and I'm trying to share the best answers that I have. And as you know, there's not like any sort of final answer. There's just better answers and better questions. And you keep peeling that onion through the, the whole life of faith. And so we're like three hours into this conversation and we have to wrap it up. And I tell Brad, Brad, I love this conversation. Um, let's have another one. Let's keep talking. Uh, but before we go, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And I said, Brad, do you want to live a beautiful life? Wasn't the question he was expecting. Do you want to live a beautiful life? And he paused for a little bit thoughtfully and said, Yes, yeah, I do. And I said, so do I. But that raises another question, which is, how do you define beautiful? Like, what, what moves your heart? What brings tears to your eyes? Like, what do you count beautiful? What, what, when you look at the world and the news feed, like, what, what do you applaud? Okay, what, what is beautiful? What is ugly? What is praiseworthy? What... What I said, Brad, what is your, your aesthetic? What's your aesthetic for this, this beautiful life? I said, Brad, because one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because I've noticed something about myself that when I ever, when I say like a little a news article or, or a little viral video that goes across social media and I find my heart swelling, when I find like tears coming to my eyes, I said, Brad, what I've noticed about all of those stories that move me is they always remind me of something Jesus would have done. So Brad, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because Jesus is my aesthetic. He, he's how I judge for myself what is a beautiful life. I said, so this might be weird to say, Brad, but I'm kind of into Jesus for artistic reasons. I, I like the way he paints a life. And I want to imitate 
that, that artwork. This is an argument I made uh, in, in another book I wrote called uh, Stranger God. And in Stranger God, I talk about how it's interesting how these, these, uh, these viral videos go around. And they become really viral and they get millions of hits. And how if you look at these viral videos, they kind of keep pointing us to the sort of thing that, that Jesus might have done. So I share these two stories from the book. In 2016, a man boarded a subway in Vancouver, Canada. And the man became aggressive. He was shouting and cursing at all the other passengers. He jerked around erratically. The man was either mentally ill or under the influence of drugs. And everybody on the train backed away. And then suddenly, a 70-year-old woman seated nearby reached out and held the hand of the shouting, cursing man. And her gesture calmed him. The man quieted and he slumped to the ground with tears filling his eyes. And the woman kept holding his hand. And when he reached the stop, the man stood up and he said, thank you. And he exited and walked away. Ehab Taha was on the train that day and he took a picture of the, the woman and the crazed man holding hands. And he posted the picture to social media and it quickly went viral. Quote, it was incredible how much he calmed down in a split moment, Taha later recounted. It was the most touching thing that I've ever seen. And then later on that year, in 2016, the, the players from the Florida State football team went to visit, visit Tallahassee's Mumford Middle School to spend time that day with the area children. Now, during the visit, the players ate lunch with the kids in the cafeteria. And Travis Rudolph, who's a wide receiver for the Seminoles, he spots a child sitting off by himself, eating all alone in a crowded cafeteria. So Travis approached the boy and he asked if he could sit by him and have lunch with him. Sure. Why not, the boy said. And so Travis sat down to have lunch with Bo Paskey. Now Bo was sitting alone that day as he did every day because he had autism. And so witnessing Travis and Bo eating together a friend of Bo's mother snapped a picture of the pair. And then Bo's mother then posted that picture to Facebook. And guess what happens again? The story goes viral. Sharing the picture on Facebook, Bo's mom wrote this. I'm not sure what made this incredibly kind man share a lunch table with my son. But I'm happy to say that it will not soon be forgotten. Because this is one day this mother did not have to worry if her sweet boy was eating alone. And so I go on and make this observation about all these kind of viral videos of kindness online. I think it's this kindness that attracts us so much to Jesus. It's Jesus' kindness for those who've been treated meanly or cruelly or dismissively. 
Our hearts thrill to these stories of kindness on social media because they remind us of Jesus. We see a 70-year-old woman take the hand of a screaming, crazy man. And we think of Jesus' kindness to those possessed of devils. And we see a football player eating lunch with an autistic boy. And we think of Jesus touching lepers. We read these stories of kindness on social media and our hearts leap in a flash of recognition. That is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus would have done. And so that's hope in action, isn't it? Right? That's hope in action. That's exactly how we want to live our lives. That's, that's our that's our aesthetic, these, these practices of kindness to people. And yet, let me trouble the waters here a little bit. Is this kindness, like, easy? Like, we share that video. Oh, look at that beautiful picture of that woman holding the hand of a crazy person on a subway. But how many of us, if we were sitting on the subway that day, would have done that? We probably wouldn't have. We would have backed up. Only one woman reaches out, grabs his hand. That day, we share the, the story of Travis eating lunch with Bo all over social media. But how many people ate with Bo that day? One. Millions and millions of retweets and shares, but in real life, only one. So our hearts thrill to this kindness, but how many of us practice it? The, the word I've grabbed onto to describe Jesus' kindness is it's a transgressive kindness. Now, transgressive is a word that comes from the art community. Transgressive art is art that offends your aesthetic sensibilities. I'm sure you've seen it. If you've been to an art museum and you're like, what is that monstrosity? That is, that is transgressive art. It's not accommodating itself to your aesthetic of beauty. It, it's it's a... It's hard, it, it, it's ugly, it might even be offensive. And so I would suggest for us that I could come up here and tell beautiful stories of kindness and our hearts swell, but in real life that, that kindness is a little transgressive. It's a little, it's a little difficult. I find myself pulling away from hope in action. The, the story that really captures this, how hard this kindness is, um, that I, I come back to a lot is um, a commencement address by the novelist George Saunders. George Saunders is a novelist and he was giving the, the graduation address at Syracuse University and he, he built the talk around his greatest regret in life. Like what what is your greatest regret in life? I'll break you up in small groups and you can share in a second. Uh, right? So he's like, he's reflecting on his greatest regrets in life. And this is what he said to these graduates Syracuse. He said, what do I regret when I look at my life? Do I regret being poor from time to time? Not really. Do I regret working terrible jobs? No, I don't regret that. 
Do I regret skinny dipping in the river of Sumatra and looking up and seeing like 300 monkeys sitting on a pipe pooping into the river in which I was swimming with my mouth open and naked and then getting deathly sick afterwards and staying sick for about seven months? Not so much. I think I'd regret that, but... Now, do I regret the, the occasional humiliation in my life? Like once, when I was playing hockey in front of a big crowd, which included this girl that I really liked, and I somehow managed, while falling and emitting a weird whooping sound, to score on my own goalie and sending my stick into the crowd, almost hitting the girl that I really liked. No, I don't even regret that. And then he settles in. He goes, but here is something I do regret. In the seventh grade, a new kid joined our class. And in the interest of confidentiality, I will call her Ellen. Now, Ellen was small and shy. And she wore these blue cat-eye glasses that at that time only old ladies would wear. And when she was nervous, which was pretty much always, she had a habit of taking a strand of her hair into her mouth and chewing on it. And so Ellen came to my school and to my neighborhood, and she was mostly ignored and occasionally teased. Does your hair taste good? That sort of thing. And I could see that this hurt her. And I still remember the way she'd look after such an insult. Her eyes cast down, a little gut checked, as if having just been reminded of her place in the world, she was trying as hard as possible to just disappear. And then after a while, she would drift away with that, that hair strand stuck in her mouth. And at home, I imagined after school, her mother would ask her, how was your day, sweetie? And she would say, it was fine. And her mother would ask, are you making many friends? And she would say, sure, lots. And some days I would see her hanging around alone in her front yard as if she was afraid to leave it. And then they moved. That was it. No, no big tragedy, no big final hazing. One day she was there, and the next day she wasn't. End of the story. And now, why? Like, why do I regret that? Why, 42 years later, am I still thinking about that? Because relative to most of the other kids at my school, I was actually pretty nice to her. I never said an unkind word to her. In fact, sometimes I even mildly defended her. And yet still, this memory bothers me. 
So here's something I know to be true. Although it's a little corny. And I don't quite know what to do with it. But what I regret most about my life are failures of kindness. And isn't that the truth? We all can sit here and go through our memory banks and we have a a catalog of Ellen's. Moments where I didn't cross a room to have lunch with somebody. Moments where I could have extended a kindness and, and I, 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 missed, I missed that opportunity. I'm struck by, I was reading your, your quote from Isaiah on your wall, where you get your name from, right? That the, the Spirit of God is bubbling up like a spring, right? But what's the line that comes right after it? It's on your wall. <laughs> it's on your wall, okay? Y'all see it? See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, and then the word is, do you perceive it? Do you see it? This bubbling up is happening everywhere at every moment of every day, and the issue, the question that is on your wall every day is, do you, do you see it? And, and I love that phrase in, in Paul's epistles where he says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Right? The eyes of your heart, like your heart is your visioning equipment. Right? May the eyes of your heart, those emotions of kindness are leading you to the springs that are welling up everywhere. And yet sometimes our hearts recoil in fear or anxiety or awkwardness. And the spring is there and we don't take a drink because the kindness of the Lord is a good Facebook share. Really viral, but hard to put into action. Let me conclude with my favorite story of this. It's a story from the prison. Ben mentioned I teach a um, a, uh, a Bible study at a maximum security prison. Very early in my days out at the unit, I was preaching on the Beatitudes. Are you familiar with the Beatitudes? Blessed are, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. And I remember vividly that night getting to blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. And when I said blessed are the meek, I, got, I saw like these skeptical looks on the faces of the men which I'd never seen before. Like, who doesn't love the Beatitudes? You not been to Mardell? I mean, we love it. We put it on T-shirts and mugs and, right? It's very viral, the Beatitudes, is it not? Very viral. Who doesn't love them? Apparently in a prison, meek is not a good word. And I, I say, you guys look like you're skeptical, like you're not buying this. And there was this like awkward silence. And finally, one of the guys says, and I vividly remember these words. They say, you can't do that in here. In here, if you are meek, that'll be mistaken for being weak. And if you are weak in here, you'll get hurt. And, and that was like the first time 
A lesson on the Beatitudes like crashed and burned, you know? I, I, I saw the, the transgressive kindness crash into the world and the prisoners just rejected it. They go like, you just can't do that. If you're swimming with the sharks, you gotta be a shark. And so, thank you, but no thank you. And I, I didn't know what to do. Like, like I, I didn't feel like I had that night the moral authority to insist on the point, right? I'm like leaving in 20 minutes. And I'm like, it doesn't, I'm like, it doesn't matter. You got, you must do it. I'll see you next week and see how it goes. Like, I, I, I was like, okay, well, moving on, moving on. And so I remember that night, I was, I was like deeply troubled. Like, like I, I had, it, it kind of was like a little bit of a faith crisis for me because I, I thought to myself, you know, is the world of the prison any different from the, from the world on the outside? It seems like to me all a prison does is just concentrate, right? And bring the kind of Darwinian, competitive, aggressive, dog-eat-dog ethic of the world. It just condenses it and boils it down. Because I don't know if kindness and meekness is going to get you ahead out, out in this world either. Which raises the whole question, is the way of Jesus just unworkable? Is it just like an unattainable ethic? And, and I didn't know. I don't live in a prison. Is it possible to be a Christian in a maximum security prison? Right now it's getting transgressive. That's not just be kind. That's not a bumper sticker. Be kind. Now it pinches a little bit. So I said to myself, for my own faith journey, I said, I got to know. I got to find out if it's possible. So I said, the next time I ever encountered the skeptical looks on the prisoners' faces, that I would sit a little longer. I would dwell a bit more, push a little harder to see, just, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I was curious. I got my chance a couple months later. We were in the Gospel of John with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You know that story. Jesus takes off his clothes and he begins washing the disciples' feet in this very tender act of gentleness and kindness. And as I'm describing living a life of servanthood and kindness, the skeptical looks return. And that was my chance. And I go, I've seen this look before. It doesn't look like you're buying what I'm selling. And I get the same answer. We understand what you're saying, but... You can't do that in here. I said, but come on. Like, I'm not saying all the time and everywhere. I'm not trying to be unsafe, but is, is there some space where you can carve out a little bit of tenderness and gentleness and kindness, even here with a trusted friend or brother? Any, any way to bring the kingdom of God into even this dark place? And the room was completely silent. And then finally, on the front row, Mr. Noriega raises his hand. Now, I call him Mr. Noriega because he's a very large man who scares me. <laughs> he's just a large guy who just bench presses, you know, like a million pounds. He's tatted up to his neck. And I, it's a very unlikely person to raise their hand on a, on a topic of kindness, but... He's my only hand in the air. So 
as all good teachers do, I call on him. I say, Mr. Noriega, do you, do you have an example of this? He goes, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but sometimes I help my celly, my cellmate. And I say, oh, great. How, how do you help your cellmate? He goes, well, my celly, he's not too bright. And on this point, everybody in the study agrees. They're like, that's true. His celly is not too bright. But as, I, as a psychologist, I inquire about that, and I discover that his cellmate has a cognitive disability. And with a cognitive disability, he needs somebody to kind of take him through, help navigate prison life. Yeah, I, I said, so Mr. Yeager, can you give me an example of how he, you know, you ha you've helped him navigate prison life? And he says, well, when I first got my celly, he never took off his shoes. Like, Never. Texas prisons are not air-conditioned. And so in the summertime, you can imagine if you never took off your shoes. His cellmate didn't take his shoes off to go to bed. He didn't take them to, to take a shower. He left them on 24-7 through sweaty week after sweaty week. And I don't need to tell you what your feet do. The, the kind of fungal experiment that was going on in those shoes, Right? And it was driving Mr. Oregon crazy. He's just constantly badgering his cellmate. Why don't you ever take, he's going crazy about it. Why don't you ever take off your shoes? Why do you not ever take off your shoes? His cellie would never say. And finally, months later, he broke him down. And he confessed. Because of his cognitive disability, he confessed. He said he didn't know how to take care of his feet. Didn't know how to cut his own toenails, and so he was embarrassed by his feet. Because of his embarrassment, he never took off his shoes. And so Mr. Noriega said, he, I said, so I told him to sit down. I went and filled a pan of warm water, and I brought it into the cell, and I unlaced those shoes for the first time in months, and they were as bad as you can imagine. And I put his feet in the warm water to soften the nails. I put his foot in my lap and began drying them. And I cut his nails for him, showing him how to do it. At this point, I'm crying. And the room is silent because they have, of what they've heard from this very intimidating man, a story of almost like mother-like gentleness in that darkest of places. And then he said the funniest thing. Mr. Uriah said, is that an example of what you're talking about? And I said, yes, Mr. Norega. That is exactly what I'm talking about. So brothers and sisters, you know, kindness is viral. It is. I've told that story to thousands of people. And every time I tell it, people get quiet, they get teary, and their hearts swell. But if you were sitting in front of those feet at that moment, I don't know if you would say, you know what? This is a beautiful moment here. I don't know if you would take pictures of those feet and share them on Instagram. Hashtag Jesus feet. 
Is all your friends during their morning coffee, you'd be like, that was the nastiest thing you've ever sent me. I didn't need to see that. Here's my point. At some moment this week, those feet will appear in front of you in some way. It might be a child who's pushed your patience to the nth degree or a spouse or a co-worker. I don't know what it's going to be. But on the surface, it's not going to look viral. It'll feel a little hard. The kindness of Jesus is transgressive. It, it pushes us out of our comfort zones. But it is the spring of life. Will you perceive it? And what is hope in action look like? It looks exactly like this. That as I, we see you out in the world this week, somebody's going to point a finger at you. Some little act of generosity, crossing a cafeteria to sit with a kid that's been bullied. They're going to see you move in the world and they're going to point at you and they're going to look to the person next to them and they're going to say these words about you. You know what? That is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus would have done.